trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. I am very happy to welcome my friend Connor Boyack from Libertas Institute, as well as the author of The Tuttle Twins. Connor, good to catch up with you. Hey, thanks for having me on, Brian. So, I asked you to join me for a segment today because... uh, I'm catching, uh, word on the street is that uh, homeschooling is suddenly in fashion. Okay, now it's not just word on the street. All over social media, I am seeing parents asking, you know, hey, what can I do? It's I think I'm going to take this seriously. And I know that that's something that you have been very involved with over the years. I just want to get your take on, uh, wow, why why this sudden urge to uh, to look at homeschooling more seriously? Yeah, it, it's definitely a huge surge. In fact, uh, over the past couple of months, there have been three national polls that have been done, all of which validate uh, the fact that there's going to be a very large movement away from schooling. In one national poll, 60% of parents said they would likely choose at-home learning rather than send their kids back to school. This has been you know, found again and again. Part of the problem is a lot of people don't like these mask mandates. They can't imagine their kid wearing a mask for hours on end. Uh, you know, no recess, no lunch, no hanging out with friends. Everything's socially distant. And so caring parents rightly recognize that that is an awful environment to subject a child to. So as much uh, difficulty as may be presented by homeschooling for some families, juggling jobs for both both parents or whatever, single parents, there are challenges. But a lot of parents, I think, are strongly, strongly entertaining the idea of staying away from public school. Well, I guess if there's a silver lining to all of the corona crisis, that would probably be the most obvious one for me. What are some of the resources that are available for those who want to make that leap? Uh, it's not like there hasn't been a lot of groundwork done ahead of them. Yeah, that's exactly right. There's uh, at least a couple million kids being homeschooled already. That number, I think, is easily going to triple, if not quintuple, here in the months ahead. Uh, a lot of people have plowed the ground, uh, as you point out. Every state uh, is different, so you'll want to Google what your state's homeschool laws are. Uh, In some states, it's extremely easy and hands-off. In others, you know, there's uh, some limited uh, testing and accountability. Uh, So you want to look that up. Be familiar with what is involved. The easiest thing, you know, we homeschool our kids. We help a lot of parents who are transitioning out of the public school system and give them counsel and, and, and point them in the right direction. The easiest thing for parents to do, and the most important, perhaps, is connecting with other parents who have already been doing this. Go to Facebook. If you have a Facebook account, which is most people, just search for the homeschool groups in your state or in your area, and you are going to find a treasure trove of information. You can search through the whole history using keywords that relate to, you know, what curriculum should I use, or is there a co-op in our community, or what are the laws? You're going to find all kinds of help Helpful people answering every question you imagine. If you can't find that answer, you simply ask. People are going to be willing to help. That the best thing that parents can do is just reach out and ask other people who are a little bit further down the road. We are we homeschoolers are a very friendly bunch, and we're especially eager to welcome so many new people into this uh, alternative, or you might say, traditional form of education. 
I like that. Traditional sounds so much better. Are, are there certain mistakes that first-time homeschooling parents tend to make, you know, just the, the trial and error thing? And if so, what, what kind of mistakes should they be on the lookout for? Great, great question. I think the biggest mistake is actually homeschooling. And what I mean by that is schooling in the home. I see parents burn out when they try and recreate the public school experience at home with regimented learning and every you know 20 or 30 minutes a different subject and having everything structured. The best homeschooling I've seen, the most successful families that thrive and the kids do really well, the kids have a bit of autonomy. There's flexibility. There's personalization of curriculum, right, focusing on what the kid wants to learn about rather than forcing them to learn like in school. I wrote a book a few years ago called Passion Driven Education designed precisely to help parents in these circumstances understand some of the pros and cons, the do's and don'ts, to make sure that you don't burn out. The second thing I would say, Brian, in addition uh, to, to what I was just mentioning, is, is the most important thing perhaps is a lot of parents, when they homeschool, they think that they need to be the knower of all the things. Right? I need to be the math teacher and the science teacher and the English teacher, but I'm not very good at math. Right? Uh, those parents freak out. They feel stressed. Uh, they don't do very well. They don't enjoy it. The kid doesn't enjoy it. Parents that homeschool need to think of themselves not as teachers, not as knowers of all the things, but simply as resource providers. Hey, my kid needs to learn about math. What books can I give them or what videos are there online or what programs? Basically, you become a master Googler, right? And you find other smart people. You find activities and events and resources that you then introduce your child to and have a world of, of knowledge and resources at your disposal, especially online, but also out in the community that you can then introduce to your child and go along the journey with them and learn, you know, relearn math together alongside of them or, or just help them get access to other resources rather than thinking that you need to be the capital R resource, you know, of all things for your children. That is how I think you're going to have better mental health, better enjoyment. The kids are going to thrive and, and everyone should do well. Connor, let's talk about creating an atmosphere of lifelong education in the home. I know that you have been very hard at work for the last few years on the Tuttle Twin book series. Talk to us about that book series and, and what you hope to accomplish with it. You know, a lot of parents are very dissatisfied with uh, the schools, not just from, you know, masks and some of these more recent things, but more broadly, the curriculum. Is it kind of left-wing bias? Are kids getting propaganda? Are they be trained to be socialists and think that government is great? There's a lot of parents who've been concerned for a very long time about these ideas. We created a series of books called The Tuttle Twins, specifically to provide these parents who are concerned with an opportunity to counteract that trend, to address that concern. Our books teach kids things that schools no longer teach, critical thinking, proper role of government, individual rights, free market economics, social cooperation, voluntary interactions, all these different things that form the basis of a free and healthy society. And so the Tuttle Twins books you can find at TuttleTwins.com. They are basically meant to be a sort of curriculum or just a, a set of books and other material that parents can use to make sure that their kids are learning the way the, the world really works and how to be a you know, complementary and active part of it. And this doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, part of the formal, you know, school day, you know, part of homeschooling necessarily. I know you've you've mentioned to me that uh, this this is the kind of thing that actually sparks really in-depth discussions, say, around the dinner table. 
Uh, yeah, the, the funniest thing for me, Brian, having worked on these books, is that we intended to create kids' books, and we did, but a secondary audience that quickly emerged and has been consistent over the years is the parents. We get so many messages from parents being like, my gosh, I learned more reading these books with my kids than I remember learning in high school, right? Or like, I was never taught this stuff in college. How come? Like, now it totally makes sense and I understand. Um, and so the, the, the discussions that, that parents and kids can have together, we explain all these complex adult ideas in very simple ways, but through fun stories and so forth. Um, yeah, the dinner conversations end up being amazing, and kids can now better understand, again, the way the world works, what's happening around us, and how they can better understand it even at a young age. And, Connor, let's apply that to, to the broader message and the broader purpose that you've been pursuing for many years, and that is spreading the message of liberty. What happens when we start teaching kids, even at a young age, these concepts of free markets, personal responsibility, personal liberty, etc.? Brian, the biggest problem that those of us who care about freedom have had is that we've been playing defense for decades. We have been allowing the public school system, and by that the you know uh, socialist, secular, humanist, leftist crowd to cultivate the minds of the rising generation, whereas we who care about freedom wait until people become adults. We wait until they're voters, and then we talk to them, having to then counteract years of propaganda and and get people to unlearn the things that they have learned over time. That is a very difficult proposition to get people to uh, turn back from the ideas that they've been learning from authoritative teachers and, and school systems for a long time. We need to compete for the hearts and minds of the rising generation. We need to equip parents to be able to inoculate their children against this kind of democratic socialism disease. And our material can help do that. The Total Twins is specifically designed to get in there and compete for those young minds because the quote-unquote left, the statists, the socialists, they've been doing this for a long time. Why in the world are we playing defense a decade later when they're adults? We need to get in there and start teaching kids the way the world really works from a free market perspective so that they can understand and have a foundation of freedom that can you know, be cultivated over time throughout their whole life. Connor Boyack, I appreciate you taking the time on my show. I will have a link to the TuttleTwins.com website in the show notes. Thanks again, my friend. I hope we talk again soon. See you, Brian. This is The Brian Hyde Show. The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back. If this is your first time joining us, I want to welcome you to a place where we gather because we are people who have accepted the truth that we are not sheep. By the way, if you'd like to join the conversation, I would welcome your call at 801-331-8113. Again, 801-331-8113. All right, I have to veer into this. I'm sorry, but I want to talk about COVID-19 again. (laughs) Specifically, though, the conversation I've been having with a number of friends and family members and just, you know, people that I happen to run into is why does it seem that the panic narrative is being pushed so hard right now? 
I mean, did you notice life wasn't exactly back to normal? It was, but it was taking on some semblance of normalcy. At least we didn't, we didn't really feel like, oh man, it's all doom and gloom. The death numbers steadily declining, even though the the number of positive tests had gone up. And I don't know what the correlation is between positive tests versus cases, if they're the same thing. But, you know, now we're being told, well, but the case numbers are soaring. Why? Record numbers. Oh, everything is bad. And I just can't shake the feeling we're not getting the whole story. And in fact, if I can just be blunt, I really get the feeling that someone wants us afraid, terrified, not thinking, not reasoning, but just stampeding in whatever direction they're pointing. There, there, go there. Put your mask on and go in that direction. Now, that may sound conspiratorial, and I get it. You know, I, you know it's, it's, it's stepping outside the narrative. So pretty much anything you question outside of the narrative is going to get you labeled as a conspiracy theorist. I'm okay with that. I've been called names before. I've been barked at by bigger dogs than you, so you know, don't worry about it. But I always come back to the question, who benefits if the American people are terrified of COVID-19? There's a great article on intellectualtakeout.org by, by Edward Acorn. And he says the narrative of panic advanced by much of the news media seems to fuel this feeling that is terrifying Americans of COVID-19. In fact, he says in recent days, the focus has been on the skyrocketing numbers of people testing positive for coronavirus. But he also points out there are very promising signs that the virus is burning itself out. After spiking earlier this year, death totals have fallen steadily for 11 straight weeks. That's according to the Federal Centers for Disease Control. And while every death is sad, that curve reassuringly looks like the chart of flu deaths in recent years. Deadly viruses tend to strike hard, claim lives, and then mutate and weaken. So getting accurate numbers of deaths from the coronavirus is unfortunately difficult. Hospitals are rewarded with taxpayer money for labeling any death a COVID-19 death if a patient happens to test positive for the virus. For example, if someone with stage 4 cancer dies after testing positive for COVID-19, he or she is said to have died from the virus, not the cancer. Or if someone sustains fatal injuries in a car accident and is found to have had COVID-19, he or she is said to have died of the virus, not the crash. Doesn't that strike you as odd? that the numbers would be reported in that way? Who benefits from those inflated numbers, if in fact that's what they're doing? Going back to Edward Acorn, he says another strange new process is playing out in the numbers. Hospitals looking for additional taxpayer dollars are going back and attributing additional deaths to COVID-19. Though the deaths may have occurred months ago, They're being added to today's numbers by such media operations as the COVID tracking project. Hence, these numbers might be used to advance a panic narrative of rising deaths to accompany the panic narrative of rising cases. That could fuel the argument that southern states are catching up with the deadly northeast and therefore must be locked down. Other analysts like Twitter's Kyle Lamb have sought to calm fears, reassigning the new death numbers to the periods when the deaths actually occurred. Now, Mr. Lamb's work formed the basis of the chart that is shown here in the article, and I will include this in the show notes, which you can access at lovingliberty.net. It was a chart created by Rhode Island epidemiologist and internist Andrew Bostom, who gave the author scientific guidance on this piece. And Dr. Bostom says, 
This is a huge scandal being ignored by the media. Speaking of adding supposed deaths from months earlier to inflate the latest statistics. Now, the original lockdowns were supposedly designed to, quote, flatten the curve and prevent hospitals from being overrun, something that didn't come close to happening. Initial projections of hospital use, even taking lockdowns into account, were widely, wildly inflated. Unfortunately, though, he says, though COVID-19 can be very nasty and even deadly, months of experience have taught us it is not nearly as threatening as the anointed experts first assured us it would be. Treatments have also improved as clinicians have become more familiar with the disease. Most notably, we now know the virus does not affect the whole population equally. About 80% of deaths occur in 20% of the people. Those with challenged immunity systems, especially the old, are most at risk. And it appears that over 90% of the populace shows minimal or no symptoms when infected. In fact, he says in his home state of, of Rhode Island, 80% of those who have died were nursing home residents. It's even possible that by shutting down schools, officials may have slowed the process of herd immunity that ultimately defeats viruses. And it's striking, and a great blessing, how little COVID-19 directly hurts children. Dr. Bostom notes that over this year's season, CDC data revealed the flu was five times deadlier to children ages 14 or younger than COVID-19. Children in school, it appears, would help build up society's herd immunity to the virus in the safest manner possible. So while the media's focus has been almost entirely on COVID-19 cases, few seem to be exploring the long-time impact of the novel social experiment of shutting down our society. And these are the questions we really need to be asking. How many small businesses and lives behind them were destroyed? How much violence and despair have been fueled by preventing human beings who are intensely social beings from interacting? How badly have we damaged children who need play and socialization to be happy and to grow? How many people will die because they could not seek medical attention for ailments or they feared to do so? He says those inclined to promote the panic narrative argue that the plummeting number of deaths is misleading, and they warn that the rising number of confirmed cases will quickly lead to rising deaths. Well, so far, thankfully, that hasn't happened. And that may be because many of those testing positive of late are younger people who very rarely die from the disease. In addition, the rising numbers of cases may reflect the rising number of tests administered. Edward Ackhorn says, so why the panic? Why would so many in the news media prefer a panic narrative to a more encouraging one? And by the way, if that sounds unfair, how dare you ask something like that? I think it's a totally fair question to ask. Why is the news being reported the way that it is? He points out there are financial incentives for promoting fear, the most powerful human emotion. Panic drives all important Internet clicks, which of course mean advertising revenue. And politics surely play into this as well. The mainstream media, which have dropped the cloak of objectivity that journalism once wore proudly, now overtly champion the Democratic Party. An aura of chaos and fear could be used to topple the incumbent party in the White House and the Senate. So Edward Ackhorn says, if we can set politics aside, the science does not seem to support public terror and the need for new and damaging lockdowns. Now, we should be careful, of course and strive to protect the most vulnerable. But the but reason and perspective will be greater friends than panic in seeing us through this challenge. And I agree with him 100% on this. 
Panic is not what you want in people who are are thinking and reasoning and making informed choices and then uh, acting upon their best interest. Panic is what you want to use to get the herd stampeding in a predictable direction. And right now, as it pertains to COVID-19, the media is doing a pretty fair impression of the cowboy shooting his six-gun in the air and yelling, yeah, yeah, as he tries to stampede the herd whichever direction he wants him to go. And if you don't want to walk with that herd or run with that herd, trust me, there are people waiting to come and uh, bring you back into line. In fact, members of the herd will say, hey, what are you doing? Get back in here. (laughs) Okay, we'll take a quick break. We'll be back after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show, 801-331-8113. Okay, so if I've been chipping away at your peace and quiet, or at least your peace of mind, by suggesting that, hey, maybe we're being played, I'm going to double down and chip away a little bit further. I want to give a shout-out to my friend Riley Blake, who is a tireless fighter for freedom. He shared this article on Twitter, and the title of this, this is from TomNicola.com. The title is, What If We've All Been Primed? And by sharing this with you, I'm not going to say, well, everything I'm sharing is this is 100% truth. It's written in stone. You have to believe it. But I think this is a point of view that maybe we should be asking ourselves, hey, could this be the case? What if we've all been primed? Tom Nicola says we're all in this together. Stay home. Stay safe. We'll get through this. It's our new normal. He says, these words have been repeated so many times, you think that they're used for selling the latest superfood. Well, they're not selling a superfood, but is it possible that they're trying to sell us something? He talks about how uh, Vanessa and he were playing their morning game of sequence and drinking their coffee in early April. He says, we've been playing card games before work since well before the COVID-19 chaos. Just before the news shifted to commercial, the news person stated, stay home, stay safe. And then the commercials came on, with one after another using the phrases mentioned above. And he says, that was the first moment I realized how often those phrases were coming at us. Of course, once you notice something like this, you can't not see it and hear it anymore. Welcome to the Batter-Meinhof phenomenon. Perhaps my bringing it up to you will now make you aware, too. He says, whether the coordinated use of these phrases was some sort of nationwide scheme created by a group behind the curtain, or it was a simple coincidence... We've been primed, and it's had a visible impact on people's thoughts, words, and actions. And next he talks about behavioral priming. He says, though its effects are controversial, psychologists, researchers, and marketers have tested behavioral priming since the middle of the 20th century. Now, if you're not familiar with priming, it's the ability to influence someone's thoughts, attitudes, and behaviors without them knowing it, through exposing them to a previous stimulus. For example, Repeating the phrase, stay home, stay safe, could be a form of priming, as it has the potential to impact the way people think or don't think and just do or speak or act. As John Barg explains in his article in the European Journal of Social Psychology, quote, The past 25 years have seen amazing empirical advances in our knowledge of the kinds of of psychological concepts and processes that can be primed or put into motion unconsciously. 
social norms to guide or channel behavior within the situation, goals to achieve high performance, to cooperate with an opponent, or to be fair-minded and egalitarian. Emotions that shape our reactions and responses to subsequent unrelated stimuli. And, of course, knowledge structures such as stereotypes and trait constructs for use in the comprehension and encoding of often ambiguous social behavior. And social behavior itself, he says, can be produced unconsciously in the same fashion. Still more recently, through prime, though priming effects of even greater complexity have been discovered, such as in the non-conscious activation of deep cultural ideologies and other interpersonal relations. End quote. So next, Tom Nicola says, just consider this statement. We're all in this together. Now, if you hear this over and over and unconsciously believe it, then it means those who don't follow the conventional recommendations aren't in this with you. They're outsiders. They're easy to hate, to target, to slander. It feels okay to treat them as outsiders because people believe they have the support of the pack to do so. Or take this phrase, stay home, stay safe. This implies that by staying home, you're doing something that helps protect people. To not stay home then would mean putting others at risk. It sets the stage for people to easily buy into the idea that if you don't stay home, you're selfish. Now, there's nothing to prove this statement is accurate. Recent data says the opposite. 66% of hospitalizations in New York are from people sheltering in place. Yet if you ask the average person what should they do to protect themselves and others, they'd say, I should stay home to be safe. Behavioral priming can lead us to believe something is a fact even without evidence to support it. It would explain why some people feel it's okay to throw stones at those who believe in something other than staying home. They want to slander doctors who suggest we're actually safer being at work. Maybe their strong emotion comes from the fact that they've been well-primed over the past couple of months. And finally, what about this? A new normal. What a perfect phrase to prime you to accept a life that's different from the life we lived up until 2020. If you believe whatever we're told to do next is the new normal, after hearing that phrase a thousand times, you'll be less likely to question whatever the suggested normal might be. Now, he says, I'm not suggesting this is some sort of global conspiracy or that a group of evil-minded people decided to take advantage of the situation we're in right now to create a different way of living. It's possible somebody simply threw a few fra phrases together and they took off faster than a contradictory video on YouTube, but with far less pushback. Maybe it was just a coincidence. He says, I'm only asking the question, what if? What if the phrases we've constantly heard have shaped the way we think about our actions, the way we judge others' actions, and the way we accept we might accept life in the future if it becomes different from what we've experienced in the past? What if there are motivations behind all of this that aren't pure? The only way to find out is to ask questions. And the weird part in it all is that once people begin asking questions, you're often met with an onslaught of hate and anger, which makes you wonder even more if there isn't something behind it all. What if, by simply asking, what if, you start to feel less concerned about COVID-19 and more about where we're headed as a country? Now, he says, of course, I could be way off base with my questions. If I am, I don't mind. I'm simply asking questions worth considering. Wisdom comes from asking questions, not from simply following along with whatever we're told. 
And I love this last line. We all need to ask more questions rather than accept all answers. That rang so true to me. And again, hat tip to Riley Blake. Riley, you're doing great work. Thank you for sharing this. I will post this in the show notes, which you will find at lovingliberty.net. I'd recommend share it with your friends too. Let them decide for themselves. You know, I've, I've, I've had numerous conversations with numerous people on social media and in person about uh, wearing that mask. Why I am so resistant to putting on a mask. And it really comes down to it's, it's less of a, a concern over, you know, I'm just flouting, you know, whatever knowledge is out there about COVID-19. And it's far more based in my concern of where we are headed as a country. Like I was telling Eric Peters, you know, in the, in the first hour of the show, I have a strong sense that by putting on that mask, I am signaling my acquiescence to the collective. And that's something that I'm just not willing to do without a fight. I'm not a huge fan of Star Trek, okay, the original or the next generation or Babylon 5 or Deep Space Nine or all the other, the various spinoffs. But I remember a particular episode in which uh, I, I don't even know the name of the character. I know Bruce Boxleitner played, played the character who was accused of a crime and being told, you need to confess to this crime. It'll just make things easier. Just go ahead and confess. We'll, uh, we'll take it from there. You know, your punishment, punishment will be lighter but you need to confess to this crime that you did not do. And his answer was, no, I won't do it. I will not yield my will to what you are telling me to do. And the the prosecutor who's telling him, look, you have no hope of beating us. You lack the resources, you lack the knowledge, you lack the time. We will eventually convict you. And when we do, you'll be punished even more severely. You cannot possibly win, is what he's told. And his answer is, I win every time I say no. I understand that's going to strike some people as just being stubborn and unreasonable. Maybe it's going to strike some people as, well, you think you have all the answers. I know I don't. But because I'm willing to ask questions... Because, like Tom Nicola, I think we need more questions being asked than just simply taking answers at their face value. I'm willing to ask those questions. I'm willing to be misunderstood. I'm willing to be portrayed as, you know, an enemy to the public good, if that's how some people see it. Because I feel that there is far more at stake here than simply health. Personally, I feel that there is, uh, there is a test being administered here And I just have to wonder if that test is how easily will you yield to the demands of the collective? And I don't know what your answer is going to be. I won't presume to tell you your answer should be this. But speaking strictly for myself, how quickly will I yield to the collective? Let me just say, I hope you brought a lunch. It's going to be a long day. This is The Brian Hyde Show. The Brian Hyde Show.
Hey, welcome back to the show, 801-331-8113. We still got one segment here. If you want to make the most of it, call me up and let's talk. Got a couple of quick articles I wanted to share with you. I'll get to those in a few moments. Uh, one is from John Miltimore, another deadly cost of the COVID-19 lockdowns, a hidden epidemic of drug overdoses. And there's also some talk about, I know I know a lot of people are frustrated, you know, with the uh, very active censorship undertaken by Twitter, Facebook, and other, you know, big tech giants. But unfortunately, conservatives are pushing for, you know, what we need is some kind of a fairness doctrine for the Internet. And that's a really bad idea if you value free speech. We'll get to that in a minute. Let's go to the phone caller. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Brian, for taking my call. appreciate it. What's on your mind? Well, you've really got me thinking here. Um, I, I, I've really been looking at our leaders and behind the leaders and, you know, sort of conspiratorial, you know, the um, deep state or the, the the New World Order people the, um, and the, the very, very, very rich, you know, but, you know, whatever happened, you know, in, in free, free enterprise, we can kind of look at the options out there and and choose what we want our options which way we want to go what's what's good for our situation on here on the ground right in front of us where we're living but you know what if the people we're electing would have they've never learned critical thinking and what if they're just panicked making all these decisions, and they don't step back, and they have no vision. They can't see that 1 plus 1 equals 2. They can't see where their decisions are leading, and maybe we're being led by people who are living in chaos themselves. They, they make that's, a decision, and they don't know where it's going. That's a that's a fair observation, Ray, and I, I don't know if you heard in the last hour I was sharing a, an essay from Donald Bordreau, about uh, why you know who who are these people that want to make these decisions for us? Did you happen to hear any of that? No, I didn't. I would encourage you if you if you are so inclined, go to the show notes at lovingliberty.net. I have it posted there. But he's asking the exact same thing. How is it that some bureaucrat or some collection of bureaucrats can decide for Ray what is best when they don't know any of the particulars of your life? They don't know you know what your needs are. They just know well. But if I say this, you have to do it whether it's good for you or not. Wow, I'm thinking along the same line as he is. Wow. Yes, I've got to check that out. Okay, thanks so much for your call. 801-331-8113. Just a quick touch on this article by John Miltimore. He starts by noting the bodies arriving at Anahi Ortiz's office. They are arriving faster than he can process them. We've literally run out of wheeled carts to put them on, Ortiz says. He's a coroner in Columbus, Ohio. This is what he recently told the Washington Post. The cause of death, though, isn't the coronavirus. It's drug overdoses. And Ortiz says sometimes his office is getting as many as nine ODs in the course of a day and a half. And what's remarkable is this story fits a pattern emerging around the U.S. Nationwide, the Washington Post reports, public health officials are reporting alarming spikes in drug overdoses, a hidden epidemic within the coronavirus pandemic. Again, I'll have a link to this article in the show notes. I would recommend check it out. It's one of those uh, unintended 
and therefore, you know, unaddressed things that the lockdowns have helped to exacerbate. By the way, suicide rate is another one that's very, very high. Let's not forget about uh, if, if, if it's true that, you know, we just want to save lives, then let's consider some of the lives that are being lost through ways that aren't attributed to COVID. Back to the phone. Caller, welcome to the show. Hello. Hello there. Um, you know, every time I hear someone say, well, you know, your opinion doesn't line up with the experts, you know, I'm not, not even getting to, well, what about the experts who don't agree with the official narrative? You know, I, I, I don't go here because it, it's just not worth it. But the question in my head is, do you have any idea how much time every weekend I personally fixing things that experts with degrees got wrong? <laughs> I'd say it takes up most of your weekend. At least a significant chunk of it. You know, I, I know it's mechanical stuff rather than medical, but, you know, the point still stands. Experts do not always get it right. And quite often, you know, someone without a degree who has lots of practice analyzing data and figuring out solutions to complex problems that experts created is able to see something that they missed. I don't know if you remember a few weeks ago, I I shared a a commentary from an expert on NPR who was bemoaning how people are no longer listening to the experts. These people, they they think they can think for themselves. And he was very indignant about it. But it just it illustrated that disconnect between those who who really believe they have all the answers versus those of us who are willing to to hear what they have to say, but aren't going to sit there and turn control of our lives over to them. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'll, I'll give experts they do, absolutely. You know, they did something that I have not been willing to do, which is, you know, spend hundreds of dollars and, you know, several years of their lives going to college. Fantastic. If they're going to tell me to do something, they'd better be ready to share their data and it had better back up what they're saying. That sounds fair. Hey, thanks so much for your call, 801-331-8113. I'll get as many calls in as I can in the, the few minutes that we have left. While I wait for the phone to ring, let's talk about fairness doctrine. I, I wish I could pronounce this writer's name correctly. It's James Zerniowski. James, I apologize. I'm butchering your name, but uh, I loved the article from FEE. That's the Foundation for Economic Education, FEE.org. A fairness doctrine for the Internet could backfire on conservatives. Again, I'll have this posted in the show notes, but it, it, the, the gist of it is, in an effort to enhance their freedoms, conservatives may end up creating an Internet that actually restricts them more than ever before. That's the danger of trying to turn things over and saying, government, you be the arbiter of what is right and wrong here, because once you hand that over to government, it will become politicized, and at some point, someone's going to turn around and stick that right in your ear. Happens every time. Back to the phone. Caller, welcome to the show. Oh, we got feedback. Heary feedback here. Let me see if I can figure this out. Okay, we're going to have to try again. Call me back. 801-331-8113. There we go. 
Now it's working. Hi there. Welcome to the show. Hi, Brian. It's Wendy. Wendy, great to hear from you. <laughs> nice to hear you. I, I listen I just don't call in as much, but I, I just want to thank you for being that voice of reason. You know, I'm in a situation now where I'm feeling pretty isolated and everybody around me wears masks and and I don't, and um, I get those stares, you know. Anyway, um, I, I appreciate knowing that there are other people who <laughs> feel that adults can make decisions for themselves. We don't need to be told everything to do in every aspect of our lives, and I, I just really appreciate you for that. Thank you for having the courage to, to stick it out and stick to your principles, even when it's tough to do so. Um, I don't know if you heard Eric Peters in the last hour, but he, he talked. I did. He talks about how that that little bit of courage. If one person has the courage to stand up and do it, it becomes contagious. Unfortunately, that means the you know the pack wants to pile on. Hey, you get back in line! But <laughs> thanks for suffering a little bit for for your principles. I wanted to tell you one other thing. I was listening um, at at one of your breaks to the news that was on and. Um, they were. They stated how many deaths there were um, today, or maybe yesterday, over. And um, it was the highest daily total since I guess the beginning of this. I, I I didn't take down notes. I didn't get it exact, but it was the highest daily total since whenever. And then he goes on to say that may include deaths not reported over the weekend. So that could have been a three-day total rather than a one-day total. I'm like, you know, and people don't listen to the whole thing. But the important thing is you're afraid, I'm afraid, and therefore we're going to do what we're told, right? Right, yeah. Anyway, I appreciate you so much, Brian. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for the call, and that's what a positive note to end the show on. I think I'll just let the music roll, and we'll carry it from there. If you haven't subscribed, please subscribe to the podcast. You can listen anytime you like. Check out the show notes at lovingliberty.net. And thanks again for listening. This is The Brian Hyde Show.